I've been um, receiving uh, or noticing a lot of strange articles or a lot of articles with similar themes. And I just thought I'd try to pull them together. Um, is America traumatized? Anderson Cooper has a new series exploring grief and loss in a deeply personal podcast. I got this, it was uh, in the New York Times on November 28th. Over the eight episodes of All There Is, the CNN anchor digs into his own family traumas as well as those of others. Now, Anderson Cooper is a very prominent journalist in his 50s. He's had a long-term, he's gay, he has a long-term relationship. Uh, he has a child. Um, he, it's hard to say one person is the most popular journalist in America, but he's very, he's beloved. People like him, he's very human. And we know a lot about his life. I, 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 just about more about his life practically than anybody else in America because he was very close to his mother who's named Gloria Vanderbilt. And Gloria Vanderbilt was sort of famous as sort of poor little rich girl. Her name is, uh, she was descended from both the Vanderbilts who sort of built New York City, Cornelius Vanderbilt, owned all the shipping and railroads and he built Grand Central Station. And Whitney um, is the name of a big museum. It's another wealthy family. And both sides of the family sought custody over her and they had a trial. And the, the trial for her custody when she was a small girl received worldwide press uh, coverage because they're two of the wealthiest families in the world. And as a result, she was sort of, people were fighting over her, but nobody seemed to want her. And so this is Gloria Vanderbilt, who Anderson Cooper's mother. But she emerged from that. And in the 1970s, Vanderbilt launched a line of fashions, perfumes, and household goods bearing her name, she was particularly noted for <clears throat> uh, the first developer of designer blue jeans. So, Anderson Cooper's mother was one of those people you might say is a victim of being a wealthy person who was traumatized. People fought over her but didn't want her. It had a lot to do with money. And she emerged from that and developed an entire fashion line associated with her name and became wealthy again. Her biography, she studied at the Art Institute's League of New York. She was known for her artwork with one woman exhibitions. Uh, she held her own um, museum exhibitions. She developed a series of Hallmark cards um, and she continued that throughout her life she also wrote a great deal. Now, her life wasn't perfect. She had four husbands. Two of those husbands, one was Leopold Sitkowski, who was the most famous conductor in America, and the other is Sidney Lumet, a very famous director. 
So she is living a life as much emblazoned in the headlines as there could be. Um, and she's very close to her son, Anderson Cooper. Um, uh, and that they were joined together because Anderson Cooper is in his mid fifties. Now when he was 21, his older brother committed suicide. And uh, among other things, Gloria Vilderbilt has written a number of novels and she wrote a memoir about her son's death. And in January 2017, HarperCollins released a book co-authored by Vanderbilt and her son, Anderson. The Rainbow Comes and Goes, A Mother and a Son on Life, Love and Loss. The book was described by the publisher as a touching and intimate correspondence between Anderson Cooper and his mother, offering timeless wisdom. <clears throat> So they also did a HBO special, Nothing Left Unsaid. So Anderson Cooper is a human being who's explored his life and his mother's written a number of memoirs. Her life is extremely public, sort of throughout his life. And now he's doing a series about grief and loss of grief <clears throat> and loss in life. Um, this is a quote from him before uh, the current series. This is what he said. Loss is a theme that I think a lot about. And it's something in my work that I dwell on. I think when you experience any kind of loss, especially the kind I did, you have questions about survival. Why do some people thrive in situations that others can't tolerate? Why would I be able to survive and get on in the world on my own? At one point in the history of America, we might have focused on that last question. What about um, Anderson Cooper? I mean, he was gay as well. He's in his mid-50s. It wasn't fashionable to be gay at that time. It wasn't something that was accepted. Um, how did he survive and become among America's most prominent journalist. We might focus on that. And instead, at this late point in life, he has a permanent partner, a life partner. He has a child himself. He wants to focus on loss and grief. Does that say something about America, that that's where we're at? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> jump in if you feel like it, Zach. What, it's, it's one two different ways of looking in the mirror. At one point in the history of America, we might have said, here's a person whose older brother committed suicide. Now, I'm not going to say anything against Anderson Cooper. He had a few advantages in life. Um, he came from among the wealthiest families in America. His mother loved him. I mean, uh, she was aware of gay liberation before there was such a thing. Um, he went to the Dalton School, and he graduated early. And as a way of dealing with the grief of his brother's loss, he traveled around the world and in Africa. And then, you know, he became <clears throat> a prominent journalist. Somebody might look at that and emphasize it's incredible how he recovered from that loss. At the same time, you would say, gosh, he had an awful lot of resources and advantages to take advantage of. Mm. 
But that's not how we're doing it nowadays. People suffer losses like that. It's not good. Like not, no one would want that kind of loss. And when someone has that kind of loss or that 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 difficulty in life, you want to you want to be able to nurture that. You want to be able to have empathy and say, "Well, geez, that's a human difficulty, and yeah, that's there's nothing good about it." But right, someone in a um, lower socioeconomic status, let's just say somebody with many fewer resources could have experienced a similar loss. And interestingly, I know a lot of people in those situations who do suffer that kind of loss, whose mindset is something like, well, given that I'm facing so much, it sure is awesome that I have an appreciation for, in one case, music. That'll carry me. Um, whereas Anderson Cooper, you can kind of make a, a long list, a scroll style list of the resources and uh, availabilities that he's had in his, in his life. And that's not the focus. So you're saying with some people, <clears throat> it was almost as though Anderson Cooper could sort of pick. Yes. What might I do? I mean, I, I when he was his, he was 21 when his brother died at 23. He didn't think, oh, I'll be a prominent journalist. He probably had an array of things he might have chosen from. You're saying that you've known people that perhaps had one strength or one gift, and it was that one thing that they turned to as their pillar of strength in order to get them through difficult childhood or life circumstances. I'm saying that. You said that beautifully. And and I'll add that I know people with many fewer strengths or gifts who have gone in opposite direction and you know, looking on, you're not a person wouldn't exactly be surprised that they would go in an opposite direction because they didn't have such a selection. But what we might try and do, we're part of the Life Process Program. Our goal is to help people recognize their strengths and their ability to control their lives. If we were to look at those circumstances that they underwent, we would emphasize their what they do what resources they do have, which in just about any other human being's case are less than Anderson Cooper's, and to work on those strengths to foster their optimism. I just want to mention one person. I don't, I'm not here to parade my own life. It's not my approach to addiction or therapy or anything. I'm not a role model for anybody. I had one brother, an older brother, and he committed suicide. So, you know, that doesn't make me good or bad. It doesn't mean I know more than other human beings or I know less than other human beings. But let's just say many people, of many of us, you know, have faced things that could be called traumas. And in fact, they're not that exceptional. So let me just go on to other things that have come across my trance and all of this occurred within a couple of uh, uh, days. I just happened to notice it. The article about um, Anderson Cooper's new series, Explores Grief and Loss, came in the New York Times on November 28th. On November 27th, there was a Times article called Grief is a Forever Thing. My 21-year-old sister ended her life on April 16th, 1990. There isn't a week that goes by that I don't think of her. In my mind, she's as vibrant as the last day I saw her, and she is often in my dreams. On November 27th, How to Talk to a Widow, New York Times. 
people are kind, some are wonderful for a time, then they move on to the next widow. People assume that I was feeling better about my widowhood. I guess I was supposed to have recovered from that. Apparently, the correct amount of time is a year or so. Apparently, I wasn't doing the recovery thing right. So in a period of a couple of days, it, it just struck me how many people were focusing on centering their life around grief and loss. Anderson Cooper, if he has among his skills, is ferreting out what is strong in our culture. What's the way of people are thinking? There was another article in the New York Times. I, I ranged pretty far afield doing my research. I, I just sit around tooling around. <laughs> waiting, waiting for Times articles? <laughs> yeah. Selena Gomez, Taylor Swift, and the reality of imperfection. New York Times, November 27th. Mm -hmm. By most measures, Selena Gomez and Taylor Swift are remarkable women. Intelligent and capable, they've succeeded through innate talent, hard and sustained work, ambition and vision. Both are the kind of mega pop stars who inspire convulsions of adulation and tears. Crowds surge in part in their presence. Their grace with radiance that seems almost exclusive to celebrities with skin so incandescent it needs no filters. But that's, people don't write songs about that. <clears throat> and uh, in her most recent, uh, Taylor Swift is the most successful recording artist in America now. She has her own industry, but they are not perfect, nor importantly do they prefer to be. A recent Apple TV documentary, Selma Gomez, My Mind and Me, offers an unsparing portrait of Gomez, now 30, and her experience with bipolar disorder, lupus, anxiety, and psychosis. On her latest album, Midnight's Taylor Swift, 32, sings about her depression, working the graveyard shift about ending up in a crisis. It's me, hi, I'm the problem. It's me, it's me, hi, everybody agrees. Everybody agrees, goes the song anti-hero. Sometimes I feel like everybody is a sexy baby and I'm a monster. <clears throat> Taylor Swift is writing about mood swings she's had and anorexia. And she's among the most popular recording artists and successful recording artists ever. It's that emphasis, and then she's being welcomed for giving that emphasis to her experience. Okay. <clears throat> um, she, we sort of know a lot about Taylor Swift's social life. I mean, Taylor Swift, nobody is, is, comes from as privileged a background as Anderson Cooper, but um, Taylor Swift isn't a minority, an oppressed minority. Uh, she came from a middle-class home. Um, she's famous because when she was a teenager, she started writing songs, and her mother and father, I think she came from Western Pennsylvania, drove her to Nashville. Uh, she might have just been 14, where she dropped off samples of her songs and took a little while, but the rest is history. She's a person who had incredible initiative. She had exemplary support from her parents. I mean, you know, some parents might say, are you kidding me? You're 14. Nobody's interested in your music. That's not what her experience was. 
but we're aware that her life isn't perfect because her song, Ovra, is a list of failed relationships. Mm. Um, she's been writing about that for a long time, often vituperatively towards the other people. And we know that she's had certain discontents. One of the most famous, I'll just to give an ex alternative example. I mean, there's a photograph of her walking down the street over one Thanksgiving with Jake Gyllenhaal. And they were walking down the street of Park Slope, which I where I happen to live and uh, where you've been and visiting me. And, you know, that didn't work out. Uh, but Jake Gyllenhaal's sister is Maggie Gyllenhaal, and she's married to John Peter Sarsgaard. They're kind of famous people, but they're sort of famous. They live in an almost regular house, not quite a regular house, in New York. And um, John Sarsgaard's quote is, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's quote is, family isn't everything to me, but it's pretty damn close. He's very close to his sister. His sister's been married for a long time to John Sarsgaard. He's got something that a lot of people in America haven't really gotten. Um, despite being or because of being successful and, and wealthy and admired. So one last um, uh, thing, Serena Williams is also giving interviews where she says it's lonely at the top. She struggled to be in a relationship. I'm so used to being alone. That was in Yahoo News, November 29th. We know a ton about her life because a uh, Academy Award winning moving picture was made about her raised, being raised by her father, her and her sister, Venus, and how they came from a not privileged background. She's the greatest women's tennis player of all time. How is it that everybody now is focusing on the negatives of their lives and their trauma. How did that happen in the United States? And I want to uh, contrast that um, with a movie that's just come out. Um, Steven Spielberg's made an Steven Spielberg's about exactly my age, I think. I'm 76. Um, uh, he's released a biographical movie called The Fablements, which I've seen. Um, and it stars Michelle Williams as his mother. Now, it's the it's a film about how Steven Spielberg became Steven Spielberg. And it so happens I just had physical therapy on my hand and I talked to a woman about the movie. She heard him being interviewed. And in the interview, he talks about his life's trauma. I saw the movie and I never thought of it as being traumatic. It was about how he faced all of these different experiences and he funneled them. You we talked just before, he had advantage. His father's a successful engineer, but that caused them to move. And they moved to Northern California and somehow he ended up in high school where they were tremendously anti-Semitic. And he got beaten up. So 
that's traumatizing. But um, the movie's not a movie to me about trauma. It's a movie about how he channeled his experiences into becoming arguably the greatest director, contemporary director, certainly one of the top five. <clears throat> and he never reacted to any of his trauma. But he, he obviously, uh, let me just say the obvious. He and Anderson Cooper and Serena Williams, obviously, uh, didn't commit suicide. Um, they didn't become depressed or institutionalized or drug addicts, addicted to drugs. They all channeled their lives into tremendously successful careers, which created, uh, Steven Spielberg is divorced once, but he's married successfully to a successful person. That's all, we've gone from a whole different slant on things. And so I was talking to my therapist and she didn't see the movie and she said it was traumatic. <clears throat> but one of the big traumas was he learned that his mother was having an affair. And I watched the movie and I, I didn't know that she had an affair. They went on vacation and Spielberg videoed the whole vacation. And then he realized something from doing the video. He excerpted all of the interactions between his mother and his father's best friend. And just by looking at that, there's no part of the video where he caught them sneaking out and having an affair. Oh. Just by looking at those clips, you could see that they were intimate with one another. Mm. So he... His trauma came through. He he actually figured out the affair by using his skill. And when he showed it to his mother, she, I, I think the movie says she quit the affair. Okay. How he reacted to being bullied by these anti-Semitic people, kids, uh, he is Steven Spielberg, so he ended up making the class senior film. And in the class senior film, he one of the kids who beat him up was a punk. He sort of caught a clip of him like stealing something. So he like humiliated him, the kid, in this class video. But one kid who picked on him was the class hero. He was a super athlete, tall and good looking. And in the film, he made him the hero of the film. And that, in the movie, that kid confronts Steven Spielberg, and he is traumatized. And it's kind of subtle in a way. It's almost like he's saying, you set me up by making me the hero. And I've known people like this. Their, their lives have never matched up to being a high school hero. It's the reverse almost of what Steven Spielberg was a nerd who people bullied because of his religion. And the class hero is saying, you've set me up for the rest of my life to be a downhill slope. And to me, that's an example of how people channel their negatives into a positive. And now, obviously, Steven Spielberg had all kinds of advantages as well. I mean, well, he's a genius. His parents were prosperous. His mother is played by Michelle Phillips, Michelle Willems. <clears throat> um, 
loved him, thought he should be great. She herself had suppressed her career as a musician. And so in a way she was channeling herself into him. While we're at it, I'll just briefly, Michelle Williams is sort of, if Anderson Cooper's America's famous journalist, favorite journalist, and Steven Spielberg's America's favorite director, and Serena Williams is America's favorite tennis player. <clears throat> Michelle Williams is America's famous actress. Everybody loves her. And she plays his mother in the movie. She's famous because at an early age, she was involved with Heath Ledger, a famous Australian gifted actor who committed suicide. <clears throat> and she had a child by him. And so she she was in her early 20s at that time. He And he he didn't commit suicide. He died from some combination, as we've discussed, of uh, prescription drugs. And she's raised, I think she has three children now. She's raised that child and two others. I, I can't say she's a, the best actress in America. She's, she's one of the people who's most admired. She's managed to have that kind of a career. And her life, she didn't get married for another 10 years. She's been married twice since then until after Heath Ledger's death. And she married a man that she only stayed married to for one year. What, what do I mean by pointing that out? <clears throat> I'm not trying to make anybody look good or bad here. What I'm describing is how recovery or dealing with trauma is a lifetime enterprise. Um, Michelle Williams didn't experience the death of Heath Ledger and figure everything out. She waited a long time to get married and that next marriage lasted only a year. Okay, so we're talking in terms of decades, which is the same thing we're talking about in terms of Anderson Cooper. And the same thing we're talking about in terms of Steven Spielberg <clears throat> and Serena Williams. They're people who've evolved and developed and emphasized the positives and made connections both with other human beings I, I believe uh, Michelle Williams is married now again, as is Steven Spielberg. That path, that is a lifetime path that people accomplish. Recovery is a lifetime enterprise. Um, and trauma occurs if kind of the most prominent Americans have experienced that severe trauma and yet have continued on and prospered and done well. Isn't that a message for all of us? Well, Vince, you went all over the place there, and I appreciate, uh, the, case, I appreciate the case studies. But I, I want to answer some of the questions that were sort of rhetorical and just throw things out there and see how you respond to them. Um, I'll start broad. You, you're wondering, maybe you're not wondering, but you're thinking about how is it that the stories of traumatic events in people's lives are what catch the mainstream eye. I can I can think of one answer. I'm trying to put myself in different perspectives here. One answer could be you think about stardom and you could one could think about stardom as some sort of utopia. Like once you've reached this thing, there are no problems. So it's kind of disarming and almost nice in a in a weird way to think about your favorite stars as being human beings too, who have problems. That's kind of like, and virtuous that they would admit it rather than pretending 
so that people get the message that you know they're normal people and they're stars rather than pretending that they're in the elite and nothing goes wrong in the elite they're well they're admitting their problems they're signaling that they have so that i mean that's fair enough um you're right the part that seems to be ignored is that the more resources and the more avenues you have to avoid problems and move on no matter how difficult they are that's still that is still true among elite people and it's not knocking them to say they have more resources some people just do certainly i have more resources than a lot of people that who i work with in the helping profession and who I know in my community. So there's there's a perspective of, okay, these are human beings too. Great, they have problems, awesome. Weirdly enough, people are not thinking about, well, these people have certain privileges to help them move on in life. But sometimes that is the focus. Well, they maybe overcame their traumas, but oh, they have all these reasons that they can move forward. What's missing, I think, and what you kind of stopped me and mentioned early on is that, whatever these resources are that help people move on are also human the same way problems are human. So it's worth noting and worth shining a light on what is it about human beings that allows them to take the reins and move forward. And one thing you were mentioning is that um, you could look at things in the short term, you know, somebody had a difficult thing happen to them or something that anybody would feel traumatized with or just like it's a travesty in their lives and you look at a year out and maybe they're still having troubles but if you look at the grand scheme of their lives what's going on and how are they getting a forward trajectory in life how is taylor swift despite her difficult relationships that she sings about um making it multi what is it is she a billionaire now career and all these different why is uh, anderson cooper able to be such a successful host author why is um what's her name Swift or right anybody so right and so that should be the story the story could be could even start with a very easy to access look these are humans too and the look these are humans too story could be these are humans with real human problems you might recognize some of them no matter where you are on the social totem pole and um hey these are humans too chapter two is Human beings move on and they, they can make things better and they can make things better on some scale of very limited resources to all the resources in the world. What was what would that look like to you? And the one other thing I'm thinking, I think one step further, why in the United States now is the theme that keeps coming across from both regular people, the widows and the sister committed suicide and the superstars past trauma, rather than what you just described, the human resilience and ability to overcome trauma. <clears throat> As a culture, we seem to have gone from one theme, maybe that was unrealistic, you know, Horatio Alger, how somebody comes from poverty and becomes a great success. Uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt was a, came from a farming community and he became the most powerful man in America. That used to be one story that people told. Why is the story that we're telling in America today, even by the people who seem to have done the most to overcome trauma, the opposite story? 
Why are we focusing so much on trauma? And then here's the next question. Is that the thing that's going to make Americans the happiest and most successful? Is that shift mm-hmm. positive and therapeutic? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, why, why isn't the story in any dimension of news or reporting or narrative why isn't the story something like we've moved beyond subsistence living and you know life in some objective dimensions let's forget about the mental health piece for a second because you're saying it's sort of like a mindset but people are there's less poverty you know there's more ability to do things you we have more resources at our disposal that's not covered all of that much you you, you don't think that way given the the outlook on America or the world and in general. So I think there's, there's a, it bleeds, it lead, if it bleeds, it leads element to reporting on mental health. And I think what you're saying is that there's a mindset associated with only tapping into the versions of stuckness that trauma brings as the, the headline or the norm that actually is self-perpetuating. Is that what you mean? It is. <clears throat> And we're focusing on the individual and the most privileged individuals who have succeeded in overcoming things. But you keep returning to something which is, I think, important. Um, You keep saying, well, what about people with less privilege? And let's, we're undergoing a mental health crisis in America. Hmm. It's among children and it's among adults. America has globally the worst outcomes for both drug use and for mental illness in terms of years lost of life and disability. And the question we ask is, why is that? You and I, by the way, have just gotten off doing a web webinar in Northern Ireland, and it was a funny interaction. Yes. I was asking them, well, how are we in America different from Northern Ireland? And why do we have less good mental health outcomes and addiction outcomes? And I think one answer they gave was, well, we have more, a stronger community and extended family. And those are, you keep getting back to, which is correct. Oh, good, good. Well, I'm getting into the themes that we're portraying, but we're still focused on the individual. So I want to tap into two other headlines. New York Times, November 27. <clears throat> As Generation X and boomers age, they confront living alone. More older Americans are living by themselves than ever before. So all of the people that we've discussed, every one of them, is intimately involved with other human beings and communities. All of them. Serena Williams is a very strong family. Um, Anderson Cooper, very strong family. The Fablemans is about a family. Um, and yet simultaneous with their thinking about family problems, we're losing families. A majority of Americans are now tending to live by themselves in in later adulthood. We've lost that entire sense of community. And so you keep getting back to this and you're right. We're focusing on individuals, often privileged individuals, but what about people with less privilege? And what about culture-wide things that are happening? 
as I'm going to read that November 27 New York Times headline, as Generation X and Boomers age, I'm a baby boomer. I'm the first of baby boomers. I was born in January 1946. They confront living alone. More Americans are living by themselves, older Americans especially than ever before. And then one last headline, if you'll forgive me, by Arish Imamzadeh from Psychology Today. Um, November 27, um, living alone increases risk of depression more than 40%. A recent review and meta-analysis links living alone with depression. So we've switched, as you were tending to do, from individuals, often highly privileged individuals, often highly connected individuals, to the broader social array, more and more people are isolated. That's true both of a certain group of society and also of society at large. I do have one last headline. I have a question for you after that. Don't let me forget uh, that no, I have a question. my last. Yeah, yeah. Um, on November 29th, the Financial Times, this is the title of an article there in London. How a risky experiment with loneliness is impacting young people. Red, and I saw that her, uh, the Fre Federica Coco is the woman who wrote this for the Financial Times. Join Morning and Joe to discuss their latest reporting and what she's calling the approaching loneliness epidemic. <clears throat> so uh, you see where I'm going? We're, we're sitting here worrying about Steven Spielberg's mother had an affair. Yeah. I hope he's okay, right? I hope he's okay. He seems to have weathered that storm. Um, yeah, Anderson Cooper's brother committed suicide. I mean, what can you say? We can't minimize that. But now we're having a generation-wide, and you and I have discussed this experience, of people being less and less parts of community and relating to others. And we know, first of all, you don't have to get a PhD to know that that's going to discourage mental health. It's going to encourage depression. And that's what the data show. You go. That, well, that that's, I think I'm keen in on something that, that what you just said is what I'm interested in. When you read me some statistic about baby boomers living alone, well, you live alone. I live alone. <laughs> And I'm curious after I, I say that, I, I there seems to be a huge difference between living alone and bowling alone, as Robert Putnam would have put it. In other words, you live alone, but do you feel isolated? Well, I guess if we were trying, somebody's got to, Steven Spielberg's job is not to deal with Americans getting lonely. But if we were social policy people and we are addiction people, what? We're not going to reverse people living alone very easily. Right. But we have the Life Process Program, and what we emphasize is how can you improve the relationships that you have? I mean, most of the people that call us, obviously, they have families, and they're probably in the privileged part of the population. Um, maybe they're having trouble with relationships, or maybe they're having difficulties within their families. But we can encourage them to build on those resources, to focus on that, and to focus on their communities. 
And that's sort of the situation that we're facing. We're going to have to deal with a lot of people who are less embroiled, engaged in normal family life, and we're going to have to create compensatory social network. Exactly. And so, you know, you and I are doing that right now. And you and I have talked about in, in our podcast, how do we use technology for that purpose? Well, it, the, the experiment that kids are undergoing is that they're relating strictly through media often, and they don't know how to have relationships. Um, a baby boomer is somebody who's been through a lot of relationships. I, I have an ex-wife and three children and grandchildren, and we're using technology as a way of continuing to generate those kinds of contacts and that kind of community and that kind of assimilation. And that's our job is to make use of technology for that purpose. But also, as you and I have discussed, how to avoid allowing technology to create further and further alienation and aloneness. You the, go with the, the more thoughtful book that you could create but out of all these headlines. I mean, you could collect headlines in the next five years or something. And, you know, it's like these stars have made a sense of community or gotten over a trauma. And so can you. Here's how is the is the self-help book 101. Um, right. I, the, you and I met through technology. I mean, we did a podcast. We hadn't met yet. And uh, we did a podcast. I'd read. A book of yours. I read articles of yours. I emailed you. We spoke. I don't even think we saw each other. I think we did it like a Zoom call. That's that's a way of thinking about how to how to form a connection, and people can do that. And uh, and we've actually let's we've gone beyond that. We've each visited each other in our home format. It, right. It's it's led to technology to actual people. Right. Right. And. Um, You've met Those... my son, and I. We were about to meet. I was about to meet your daughter, but Holly... and we will. But but that's how can we use what we have? Our ups and downs, our technological features, our everything to build a sense of community and mindfulness about the way that we interact with the world is the message of all that. And your your through line is why the hell are we focused on? only how sad somebody is that something bad happened why aren't we focused on you know how to work together why are these isolated articles about how sad someone is but that's all the people's headlines you just read you know they have enough for a quorum they could vote on something they could get together and start a political party or something that they could play basketball like five on five full court and um i guess a further question is if people, so we're talking about individuals as role models, and is the best way for people to get together to commiserate? Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I am hardly a model of anything, but you and I collaborate around trying to do something productive. You're engaged in a, you're engaged in your own family, you know, you have a small child, but you're engaged in a community where you're trying to enhance its functioning. So we're arguing for an existential position 
of trying to make the best of your situation using wherever we are as a society to focus on optimism and to use the tools at our disposal to enhance our connectivity. Because there's no alternative. I mean, we're not going to be able to say, oh, more people are isolated, they're more depressed. Well, Bob's your uncle, just give out more antidepressants. Mm -hmm. There's your solution. There's... um. Unfortunately, I've had people my age, I'm pretty young, I'm in my 30s, and people my age have died. And it seems like, for some reason surrounding me, there's some kind of a cloud where uh, people who I know are are dying for uh, unexpected reasons. And I had a friend who died recently. It seems like a trend kind of recently that people are refusing to use a funeral service as a day of simply somber sadness but more like, let's tell stories about this person's life. It's a celebration of life. I think people kind of trend that way naturally. Mm-hmm. So it's funny that, uh, that again, that the stories that we tell each other would be only so down, whereas our natural tendency is sort of ameliorative in a way. Like you want to remember good times and you want to construct nice things, given that you have the opportunity to know somebody who's died or given that you have the opportunities in your life other than the traumatic ones that you faced. It seems like what people have an urgency and drive to do. I have a theory. Uh, you know an older friend of mine who since died named mm-hmm. Old Man. Um, she had my joke. She had a 90th birthday party. And my joke was, um, this is the best 90th birthday party I've ever been at, but I, I've never been in any others. Mm-hmm. And she's still, uh, it was a couple of years maybe before her death. She's still totally cognitively aware. We were celebrating her life with the people that knew her while she was alive. And in a way, what's it called? Pay it forward? What about paying your own life forward? To me, it's somewhat tragic that all those positive memories only are allowed to be expressed. Post-mortem, yeah, right. And so I guess our bottom line message is optimism is the best way to go. Try to emphasize the positive, even among the negative. Try and emphasize both the positive in your past and try to emphasize and expand the positives in your present. That's, if we were to describe the Light Process Program is an existential program for building on and expanding the positives that are really there in your life rather than focusing on the negatives and the downers in your life. Yeah, really well said. Really well said. And and the last thing I want to say is when you were giving your presentation this morning, there were um, two things that caught my attention. There was one man sitting in the front who said, you asked, you know, how many people do you think when they go into the hospital and take painkillers become addicted to those painkillers? And uh, his answer was, what he was interested in is well there are at least some so let's figure out why they're so addicted which is like a thing you want to do but you were trying to ask like how well okay yeah that but there are only some of those it, mo- everyone else doesn't become addicted so like what is it the natural thing that people do to take drugs and then get off of them um there's a girl sitting next to him who started catching your drift i think or maybe he was already thinking that way and you were asking 
Well, think about your own lives. Why are you not why are you not addicted to painkillers after you've all taken some at some point? And she started saying something about resources that people have, uh, the the lives they can access, the positivity they can generate. And you know, she went from there. It's funny that's almost like two different versions. That guy almost reminds me of somebody who wants to read the tra the trauma stories. It's not that there's no usefulness, no truth in them. But it's a matter of, um, what do you call it? It's a matter of what you want to hone in on and extract the most out of. And what you're saying is there's there's no better remedy for any of these things in our cultural problem than uh, an overall optimism and community involvement and being able to figure out what it is in your life, how you map on in a positive way. And the class was run by a woman we both know. I, I know her, I, I mean, personally more than you. Ann Campbell, whose class it was, who has, she's Northern Irish. Our program, the Life Process Program, is, org is organized out of Northern Ireland. But she has an NIDA fellowship. <clears throat> and I kept asking, and she sort of was saying, <laughs> well, in Northern Ireland, I said, well, why are Americans at the top of the list of lives lost by disability and death, five times the average of Europe? And she started saying, well, you can't, those comparisons are irrelevant. Sort of in Northern, <laughs> she started talking a bit more about Northern Ireland. Is it more a place of extended families where people are more connected to their community? That's the answer. That's that's relevant. Yeah, yeah. And she was lighthearted about it. She was very, that's she was a great leader of that conversation too. But anyway, I digress. And thank you. That was. You're kind of like, you don't have to do the work to research. The stories are popping up at you. And all you have to do is spit, put them in through this funnel and say, let's do a different uh, choose your own adventure story generator. We could do go one of two ways with this. I think that's an interesting way to look at it. But thanks, Stan.